Good to see all of you here. I just want to let you know, because some of you have asked about the mudslides in Oso, we as a church have already uh, contributed to uh, mudslide relief up there. We are also joining with other churches, Overlake Christian in Redmond, Westminster Chapel, and Quest Church in Seattle, uh, to try to raise 100K to also uh, give uh, to flood relief. So we're, we're, as a church, doing a lot. If you want to know more about that, you can contact our missions department. Uh, and thank you for your concern and for your prayers around that. Uh, a friend of mine who was recently in Texas, and, and as you know, Texas is very proud of their state and all of that, and he went into a sporting goods store that was supposed to be the largest one in the country. So he asked the clerk, is this the largest sporting goods store in the United States? And dead serious, totally meaning it, she said, not only that, it's the biggest one in Texas. And she completely meant it. <laughs> like, only in Texas, right? Like, would you get that kind of strange comparison? We're doing a sermon series called Confessions of an East Sider. Those things that we do and think that maybe we don't talk about a lot. And one of them is how much we compare ourselves to other people. And I think here on the East Side, we do this so much, I'm not even sure we notice that we do it. I mean, certainly we compare ourselves materially speaking, right? I mean, that person makes more or less money than me. That person has a better, more prestigious job than I do or less. Bigger, smaller house, all of that. But we compare in other ways as well. That person's better looking, or their family seems happier or less happy, or they're more talented or less talented, or better at school or not as good at school. And while sometimes comparing can be helpful if it leads us, for instance, to gratitude, or if we compare where we used to be to where God has brought us now, but mostly comparing ourselves to others just steals our joy. Uh, In a couple of ways. For starters, comparisons leave us feeling either superior or inferior, and usually the latter. A friend of mine recently showed me a text he got from a mutual friend of ours, and this mutual friend was a student in my college ministry and graduated, started a company that got bought out, and so now he is a millionaire multiple times over in his 30s. I made other choices with my life. So my friend showed me this text from this mutual friend of ours, and it said, Hey, I'm in Dublin right now having a pint with Bono. Awesome conversation. You'd love it. Oh, shut the door, Katie. I did not want to hear that. Right? Like, that just makes me feel like a loser, like inferior. This guy is way younger, all that. But sometimes comparisons make us feel superior to others, and that causes us to be judgmental or patronizing to other people. Second, comparisons lead us to the I don't have enough syndrome. Because we often compare up, not down. So for instance, if you make $30,000 a year, you are in the top 5% of incomes, globally speaking. If you make $62,000 a year, you are in the top 1% of incomes, globally speaking. You're a one percenter. And yet how many of us walk around going, man, I am stinking filthy rich. We don't because we're comparing We're not comparing down, we're comparing up to the few percent that's above us, which leads to a sense of, I don't have enough. I think especially around here, where there seems to be so much wealth and and so much comparison about that and all of that. I recently talked with someone who was looking for a house and getting really discouraged about how much they cost around here and how little you get for that amount of money. And he said, I always wanted to live in a million-dollar home. I just didn't know it would be two-bedroom, one-bath. I talked to another guy who was sitting out on his deck not too long ago, brand new house, and just sitting down on his deck going, I love this house, this is awesome. But then he picked up a magazine that had pictures of newly remodeled homes. I mean, game over, right? And these homes had, you know, 
pantries with rotating shelves and French doors and all of this. And he started thinking, how come I don't have rotating shelves? And then he looked at the the deck that he'd been sitting on and enjoying all morning. And he goes, I've seen firewood better than this deck. Why do we have to live in this rat trap anyway? And he said, in just minutes, I went from happy to unhappy. Comparisons make us feel like we don't have enough, even when we do. And then third, comparisons kill our connection to God. Because we think, God, how come you didn't make me like so-and-so? Or you must not love me as much because they have X, Y, and I don't, and all of that, and just kind of kills it. But in the passage that we read today, Jesus shows us how we can get out of the comparison game. And this story takes place after Jesus has been raised from the dead. And, and this is one of those passages that convinces me that the Bible is historically accurate. Because it has these odd details that you wouldn't make up. They sound like an eyewitness account. For instance, the fact that there's 153 fish. Okay, that is such a specific number, right? And, and, and there's all kinds of elaborate theories about what the 153 mean. Here's my favorite. One commentator wrote, 153 is the sum of the integers from 1 to 17, which can be expressed as a triangle. It also has the rare property of being the sum of the cubes of its digits. I don't even understand that. And then he goes on and he says, Therefore, it cannot be denied that 153 is a unique number. But how does it relate to the text? Indeed. And he never goes on to say. (laughs) He just keeps doing the math. Right? Like, it's a calculus problem, I guess. Right? It is so much simpler than that. Every fisherman knows if you got a catch this big, you would count every stinking fish for the bragging rights. Right? They counted them. This is an eyewitness account. The other odd detail comes when it says that Peter put on his outer garment, that is his coat, to jump into the lake to swim to shore. Okay, who puts on their coat to get into the water? Right? You don't do that. So clearly, Peter was just flustered, and he doesn't know what to do. And, put, and this is an, you wouldn't make that up. This is an eyewitness account. And in it, we see that the first step out of the comparison trap is to connect with God's love for you. And this is the most important one. And, and, and if you were here at Immerse this weekend, we spent all weekend talking about how we connect with God's love. And if you missed it, well, you missed it. And you should come if we do it again. In this story, the text says that Jesus has this conversation with Peter around a fire of burning coals with fish on it and some bread. A woman I know says that this proves that Jesus cooked, so men should cook. <laughs> to which a male friend of hers said, yeah, but it's a barbecue, right? <laughs> and it turns out that that's a very important detail, that it's a barbecue, charcoal fire, and here's why. Earlier, Peter bragged to Jesus, and he said, even if all fall away, meaning the other disciples, I never will. So right there, he's comparing himself to the others, right? He's basically saying, Jesus, I've been hanging out with these other 11. They're not so hot. Now, I don't know what you were thinking picking them, but let's just ditch him, Jesus. You and me, we can take the world. I'm your man, Jesus. I got your back. Right? That's basically what he's saying. He's got to keep up this image. He's comparing himself. And yet, after Jesus was arrested and Peter was asked, he denied knowing Jesus, said, I don't even know the man, not once, not twice, but three times. And all of that happened around a charcoal fire. So here, Jesus recreates the setting of that first conversation where Peter denied Jesus. And then he asks Peter, Peter, do you love me more than these? More than these, probably meaning the other disciples. So he's getting back at Peter's earlier boast, right? He's connecting it to that. 
And then he asks three times, Peter, do you love me? Just like Jesus, just like Peter denied Jesus three times. He's, he's kind of reminding Peter of that conversation, of his denials. Jesus here is twisting the knife, but it's the knife of a surgeon that's meant to heal. He's recreating the conversation so Peter can do it over again, but this time do it right. It's a mulligan. It's a do-over. Jesus is the God of second and third and fourth chances. And what he is showing Peter is there is no sin we can sin. There is no mistake we can make. There is nothing stupid that we can say that will ever make Jesus love us less. And then there's absolutely nothing we can do that will make him love us more than he already does. That's what he's trying to show Peter. And when we connect with how deeply loved we are, it makes us feel more secure. And we accept ourselves And so we compare ourselves to others less. My youngest daughter is 10, but we all still want her to be the baby. So her siblings and my wife and I are always trying to pick her up and squeeze her. And often she'll just run away, which I don't blame her for doing that, right? And we'll say, you know, come back. What is the point of you other than to be hugged? It's sort of a consumer mentality toward her, right? But it also shows how the whole family just dotes on her. And because of that, she feels so loved and she is incredibly secure in who she is. Doesn't really care what anyone else thinks about her, which at times is very frustrating as a parent. I've just got to add. One time my wife said, asked her to do some chore and, and, and Lucy said, I don't want to. And so my wife said, well, I didn't ask if you wanted to. Don't be naughty. And Lucy said, I don't care if you think I'm naughty. Do you know how frustrating that is as a parent? Like, you can't manipulate, you can't, you know. She's just incredibly secure in who she is and doesn't, doesn't really care what other people think about her because she knows how loved she is. A friend of mine says to, her, says to her kids, when she gets one of them alone, she'll say to him, don't tell the others, but you're my favorite. Except she does that with all of her kids. And they all know that she does that with all of them, right? But it still feels good to hear it. You are God's favorite, I am God's favorite. Somehow, that all works together. And when you get that, you don't compare yourself as much. That's what Jesus is showing Peter in this incredibly moving scene. And then the next thing Jesus does is he says, he gives Peter a job. He says, Peter, feed my sheep. And this is the second step to get out of the comparison trap. And that is know your purpose. What are the things, because it's more than one, what are the things that God made you to do? And you, okay, not someone else. You, your unique you. What's your purpose? Because sometimes, I don't know about you, but I compare myself. I I wish I was that person. I wish I had that person's looks or that person's skill or that person's talent. That person has more prestige. That person has more influence, right? And God says, don't do that. Sometimes, for instance, when I'm working on a sermon, I'll think, I wish I was the music guy in the church. Right? Like the music guy, they, they, they don't have to write a new song every week. Right? They, just, they just have to pick one. I, you know, sometimes I just wish I could just read through the internet and pick a sermon to come read. Maybe I'll do that someday. This is the best sermon I could find on this topic. Right? And just read it out loud. Right? They just pick it. But you know what? I would be in terrible. I'm a terrible musician. I would be terrible at the music, as the music guy. I'd pick all the wrong songs because that's actually harder than it looks. I'd be terrible. I'm not designed for it. Sort of like a cartoon someone sent me that said, why science teachers should not be given playground duty. (laughs) Takes a minute, doesn't it? Just not designed for it, right? Like, just not designed for it. You can take that down now. I think they all got it. It takes a while to figure that out. Here's the thing. 
Like there is a purpose that only you can fulfill. Only you can do that voodoo that only you do so well. And Jesus never asks, why aren't you more like so-and-so? But he sometimes asks, why aren't you more you? The you that I created you to be. Now you might think, well, what if my purpose in life is lame? There are no lame purposes in God's kingdom. And when you do the things you were designed for, you find joy in that, even if it's not flashy, even if it's behind the scenes, even if it's hard. And I'll give an example of that in a minute. And we can figure out our purpose by seeing how God has used us in the past. Others can help us figure it out. In prayer, certainly God. Ask God, why did you put me in this office, this neighborhood, this family? What are you doing here? How can I be a part? And when we figure that out, it frees us from the comparison game. Because we realize that Jesus has delayed all of history. He's delayed all, he has not come back yet. In part, he's been waiting for you to show up. Because there's something that you do that needs to be done for his kingdom to be complete. And it's not just your strengths either. It's not just your strengths. God can also use our weaknesses. Which is step number three to get out of the comparison game. And that is to realize what you don't have is sometimes what you most have. You know, on paper, Peter is not the right guy to lead the Christian movement. He was a rough, uneducated, impetuous fisherman who had denied Jesus three times. And yet Jesus says, Peter, I want you to steward this rescue mission I've started such that in a Sunday in 2014, people in Bellevue, Washington will still be a part of it. And Peter, I am placing all of that in your incredibly incapable hands. Feel free to succeed. And in that moment, Peter had to be comparing himself to the other disciples, right? Like, oh, man, you know, I mean, Thomas doubted, but at least he didn't deny Jesus. And Andrew, well, come to think of it, Andrew hasn't done much of anything, but he looks good, right? Like, they should do it, Jesus. In fact, there is comparisons all over this story. Twice, this story refers to, quote, the disciple that Jesus loved. You wonder who that is. Well, it goes on. It says, this is the disciple who testifies to these things and who wrote them down. In other words, the disciple Jesus loved is John, the guy writing this story. That's how he's referring to himself, the disciple Jesus loved. That's me. Well, aren't we special, John? <laughs> right? Like, there he is. It's like, it's like you know, neener, 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 Peter. I'm the disciple Jesus loved. You're the disciple that denied him. Right? I mean, it's just this incredible comparisons. And compared to all the others, Peter did not have what it took. Didn't have it. And yet Jesus says, plunge your failures into my grace, and your very failures will become your greatest strength. And Peter, you are absolutely the right person to lead this mission because you failed, not in spite of it. Because now you have had an overwhelming experience of my grace. And Peter is the disciple we can all relate to because we all fail, and he gives us hope for what Jesus does with our failures. Sometimes it's what you don't have that God can use the most. A while back, I was talking to another pastor who was having a hard time in his job. So I told him some of the mistakes I've made here to kind of console him and make him feel better. And he said, Scott, I love talking to you because you've messed up so many times. It just always feels good. I I live to serve. That's that's my purpose. Some of you may have heard me tell this story before, but I want to tell it again because it it makes this point really well. About an eight-year-old boy in Hawaii who got in a car wreck and lost his left arm. And after he healed, he wanted to learn judo. And his parents thought this is impossible, but he really wanted it. So they, they got him a, a they found, his parents found him a judo teacher. And the teacher said, tell you what, let's just work on one move for a while. So they worked on just this one move for a long time. And eventually the teacher said, you're pretty good at this move. Let's enter you in a competition. The boy said, I only have one move. I, only, I don't have a left arm. I don't know. But the teacher said, trust me. 
So they entered this competition for this boy's age group, and this boy won. And he asked his teacher, how can I win with only one move and no left arm? And his teacher said, well, the one move you've mastered is actually a very hard move, and most kids your age can't do it. Besides, the only defense against that move involves your opponent grabbing your left arm. (laughs) See, sometimes it's what you don't have that God can use the most. Connect with Jesus' love for you. Know what you were designed for. Realize what you don't have, maybe what you most have. And then finally, to get free of comparisons, we need what I'm going to call mental floss. To kind of get out the little thoughts that get stuck in our head that can cause soul decay. At the end of the story, Jesus says to Peter, when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone will lead you where you do not want to go. And he's basically saying, Peter, you're going to be crucified. And that, that is what happened. And then Peter looks and sees the disciple that Jesus loved, right, and following them. And Peter says, Lord, what about him? So, I mean, even after this wonderful moment of grace with Jesus and it's beautiful and all of that, right, you'd want, if you were making it up, the story would have ended there, right? Oh, this moment of grace. And then Peter still is in the comparison game. And you can kind of understand it, right? Like Jesus just told Peter he's going to be killed. So Peter's like, what about him? Can, can he be killed too, right? So you kind of get it. And Jesus' answer is so terse. If I want him to remain alive until I return, what's that to you? Wow. Basically, none of your business, Peter. I mean, I love this. Jesus doesn't say, oh, there, there, Peter. Your parents must have hurt you, so your self-esteem is low. Let me help you feel better. No. It's just buck up, snap out of it. For the last time, stop comparing yourself. And I think what Jesus is getting at here is there's some mental disciplines we have to do. Because the comparison game gets so stuck in our heads. So let me just give you a couple mental floss things. Just quick disciplines to help. Be aware. Just this week, just be aware. Notice when you compare yourself to others. I do it all the time. Just notice that. Last spring, the Jubilee Reach Center, a Christian organization that we started here in this church that helps, uh, helps people in need, I was at their auction that raises funds, and there's a category called Fund a Need. And my wife was out of town, so I was texting her, and I said, I think I'm going to give this amount to fund a need, except I mistyped it, and I said, I think I'm going to give this amount of money to fund a nerd. And she thought that was kind of funny, right, fund a nerd, and I thought, hey, I could have used that in middle school, right, like fund a nerd, I could have been the poster child. Right there, little thing, but right there, comparison, right? I was a nerd, they weren't, it's a little thing, it's a true thing, but it still is a comparison. Just when you do those moments, notice it, just be aware of when you do it. Second, thank God for the good things in your life. Gratitude reframes us from what we don't have to what we do have. Third, rejoice in what others have and bless them. Thank God for the good things other people have. This does not come naturally or easily. It's a discipline, but like training for a marathon, it makes us stronger. And it's hard to feel envy when you're praying for someone and you're trying to bless them. Fourth, remember, you don't have the whole story. Stop comparing other people's Facebook lives to your real life. They've got problems too, okay? And then last, look at Jesus, not at other people. Jesus is basically saying to Peter, I've got a plan for you and a plan for John. Both are going to include suffering, but both, of, both are going to include you both seeing some amazing miracles, which just a few le- chapters later they see when they heal a crippled man, when the Holy Spirit comes in tongues of fire, all kinds of stuff. Stop looking at other people, Jesus says. 
Look at me. I have a plan for you. I love you. I'm doing good things in your life. Look at me, not them. And as we go forward into the book of Acts, Peter becomes the leader that Jesus knew that he could be, spreads the gospel all the way around the world, and then when the apostle Paul eclipses him in fame and impact, Peter shows no jealousy, no comparisons, none. And he does end up being crucified, and yet in that very moment, he is so filled with the courage of Jesus and the joy of Jesus that he dies singing Jesus' praises, which causes other people to want to become a Christian. In fact, whenever the Romans killed Christians for their faith, conversions to Christianity went up, not down, because folks wanted that kind of indestructible joy that Jesus can give when we look at him. Recently heard a story about a young couple who all called John and Carolyn who had been trying for years to get pregnant and with no results, and it was very, very painful for them. And they saw other couples getting what they wanted and just a lot of why not us. Um, And they'd gone through several rounds of in vitro, but nothing, nothing had happened. Well, there was another couple in their small group Bible study that they'd gotten very close to. This other couple had spent almost as much time trying to get pregnant and still with no results, only they didn't have the resources that John and Carolyn did. So now they were turning to adoption, but they weren't even sure they could afford adoption because that can be, that's super expensive too, thousands and thousands of dollars. So one morning, John was driving to work, and he said, I had a thought that was so out of character for me. I knew it had to be God. It's not the kind of thing I think, that even though we were still struggling to get pregnant, we had the resources to give that other couple the money they needed for their adoption. So he called his wife, and at first she was kind of resistant, but eventually she said, you know what, I would like to do that. So they funded that other couple's adoption. And that's a lot of money. A staggering generosity. While they are still in pain of not getting what they wanted to give someone else the resources to get the very thing their heart desired. Well, that was 15 years ago. And now between the two couples, they have five kids, some in vitro, some adopted, some natural. But more than that, their generosity to each other knitted their souls together in such a way that now they are raising their kids in this kind of intentional community. Birthdays together, holidays together. They're just doing life together in this very close community. But even if John and Carolyn had not gone on to have kids, which for some couples that is the story, still that, their generosity would have eased their pain and given them joy. It would have set them free from the comparisons for a lot of reasons. Because John got to hear the God of the universe talk to him, which made him feel very loved and very special. And that God pointed out a task, a purpose that he and Carolyn could do. Part of why they were on the earth was to help that other couple get, do their adoption and provide a home for a baby that desperately needed one. And the thing that they could do wasn't flashy. It was behind the scenes. It involved pain and sacrifice. But look at all the lives they changed. The babies, the, the other couple, the, their own lives. And the thing John and Carolyn didn't have, a child, gave them compassion towards someone in the same situation, and the result was this amazing community, these great friendships, two families doing life together. Now, all of that took years. It was not instant. It took years. But look what happened. Through them, Jesus turned comparison into conquering, absence into abundance, jealousy into joy. That's what Jesus can do when we look at him, not everyone else. So how can you connect and experience his love? Maybe just remind yourself this week how much he loves you. Know some of the reasons he puts you here. Know that he can use even what you don't have, your weaknesses, for really good things. And how can you engage in a few mental disciplines to cleanse your mind of the comparison habit so that you can hear Jesus say to you, 
Don't tell the others, but you're my favorite. So Jesus, help us to hear that from you and rest in the security of knowing how loved we are. Lord, I know for me it doesn't come easily and it doesn't come natural and maybe for people in this room, but help us to experience it. Help us to connect with it. Help us to just look at you, Jesus. Whom have we in heaven but you? And having you on earth, we desire nothing else. Our flesh and our heart may fail, but you are our rock, our God, our portion forever. In your name, Lord. Amen.